For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And whosoever means me, and it means all of you. You know, yesterday morning, there was a knock at my door. And standing on my porch uh, was an older black woman, and she was accompanied by a younger woman. And I've lived in that home since 2016, and I've never had a solicitation on my porch. It's never happened. And I opened the door, and of course, they were Jehovah's Witnesses. The older lady asked if she could talk to me, and I, I told her, sure. She read Isaiah chapter 9 to me. And she asked me if I knew who it was referring to. And I told her that it was referring to my father. Long story short, once she realized I was a Christian, this stranger encouraged me in my faith. She celebrated with me the love of God. And she did not try to win me to her theology, which surprised me. I was blessed. I had been struggling all morning. The weight of today's responsibility was weighing me down. And God sent two very unlikely strangers to my front door to let me know that he was thinking of me and that he loved me. George, would you pray for me, for us today? Father, we're totally grateful you gathered us here today for a specific reason, that to talk to us, to warm our hearts, to give us some understanding, wisdom, enlightenment. We ask, Lord, that you'd help Brother Brian to be able to speak that which you've given. We ask that the Holy Spirit would walk amongst the pews Talk to each one of our hearts, pierce the heart that could be hard, that could be outside of God, there's many things to pray about, but Brother Brian wants to talk about specific things. Help him, anointing, blessing, overshadowing, giving strength, giving the courage. Help us all, Lord, as we gather in this place to worship you. We'll thank the Lord because of the song, Calvary, because we have nothing to give you except our own souls and our own flesh and blood. Help us this morning. Help Brother Brian. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I've often thought that Jonah was a wimp. He was in the whale's belly for three days and he freaked out. Um, and I've been living in it for 25 years. And I was pretty comfortable there. <laughs> I picked out curtains. The whale was kind of nice. It was warm. It was cozy. But finally, one day, I didn't feel safe anymore. I felt unfulfilled. But God would not let me out of that fish's belly until I gave him all. I've done that now, and it's a scary place. But every time I falter, he reminds me that I was not made for that whale's belly. I was made for something else. I pray that I, I pray that you have the courage and the faith to be what God calls us 
to be whatever that may be. There's no need to turn there, but we'll start off today in 2 Samuel. Actually, you can go ahead and turn there because we'll come back there later. But in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we read the following. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and she fled. But as he hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. We know this story. After years of defying God and drifting further and further from his anointing, Saul was finally taken out of the picture. David was going to assume the throne of Israel, and everyone assumed, per the usual practice and custom of the period, that the remaining survivors, the heirs in Saul's family, would be hunted down and slaughtered so that his bloodline would be extinguished and the new king would have no rivals for the throne from his predecessor's bloodline, roaming about the countryside, waiting for an opportunity to perform a coup and re-elevate the family's fortunes. Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. His grandfather was, yes, and his father, Jonathan, obviously was the prince. Both are dead. He is the heir to the throne. And in this moment, a well-intentioned nurse, in an effort to save a child, permanently disabled him. This isn't the focus of my point today, but isn't that often the case? We mean well. Like this unnamed nurse, we are trying to do a good deed. But we get ahead of ourselves, and we end up causing a problem when none existed. David had consistently shown kindness and restraint when dealing with Saul and his family for many years. There was no reason to think that he would not continue to do so. He literally had had Saul under his sword on more than one occasion. And yet he had never taken out a blood feud with Saul or his family. In fact, David greatly loved Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. They were best friends. And their friendship still remains the gold standard when one considers best friendship. David had made a vow to Jonathan, and he had kept his word thus far. Therefore, there was no reason to suspect that he would not do so now. But rather than think this through, this nurse was careless. She acted impulsively, and she changed the course of Mephibosheth's life with her well-intentioned recklessness. We are all guilty of this. We say or we do something, often something minor, but we don't think it through. Or we're careless in the performance of it, and our action changes the trajectory of someone's life. It's easy to do this with a lot of things, but I have found from experience that it's our words that usually causes this harm. They so easily spill out of our mouths. And there's a reason why the Bible refers to the dangers of our tongues and our words in over 120 passages. 
That's not my focus today, as I said, but it's a potent item we would all be wise to remember. We can all so easily cripple each other, cripple a child. You know, children are watching everything that's going on right now in our church. They pick up on people's spirits and pride more readily than adults do sometimes. They may not be able to articulate what it is they are sensing, but they most definitely feel it. And that can cloud their view of the church. It can cloud their view of God's people. And that can have long-reaching, eternal consequences. Jesus said it would be better to put an anvil around our necks and jump into the sea rather than get in the way of a child and face his wrath. That's heavy. I need to remind myself of that more. So do all of us. When David assumes the throne of Israel, the kingdom flourishes. It defeats its many enemies, it grows in its size and its wealth. And after almost 20 years, David remembers a powerful memory from his youth. In this moment from 1 Samuel, we witness a very tender and vulnerable scene between best friends, David and Jonathan. I'm referring to 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you want to look there. We're going to start with verse 13. This passage is Jonathan speaking to David. Jonathan says, May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love. Even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth, So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, May the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again. For Jonathan loved David as himself. The legacy of this friendship and the power of this memory leads David, almost 20 years later, to ask something very important of one of his servants. Let's go to 2 Samuel. Chapter 9. This memory causes David to ask in verse 1. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? On its own, That is a remarkable request. Those who are prone to extend grace ask questions like that. Is there someone who does not merit this that I can help? I want to do this for no other reason than that I promised I would. As children of God, that is a promise that's required of us to love, and to extend mercy. 
This request was not out of character for David. There are more than a few examples in his life story of him showing kindness to those who don't deserve it or those who have betrayed his trust, sometimes to his own detriment, but that's for another day. And God called David a man after his own heart. He did not say that about Paul. He did not say that about Abraham or Moses. He did not say that about John. He said he loved John, but he didn't call him a man after his own heart. But he said that David was a man after his own heart. I can't help but think that this quality of David's to extend this grace may have been a key reason why God said that about him. Let's read the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 2. He, referring to David, summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Paul's servants. Remember, David has been king now for almost 20 years. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both of his feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lobadar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of, I have no idea how to pronounce that. Let's just call him Abe. So David sent for him, and he brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect, and David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. And Mephibosheth bowed respectfully, and he exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And I think of that song. We just heard it. My trophies and crowns, my robes stained with sin, was all that I had to lay at his feet, unworthy to eat at the table of life, to love, made provision for me. Verse 9, then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba, and he said, I have given your master's grandson, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all 
that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. There's something very telling in all the references to Mephibosheth in these various passages in 1 and 2 Samuel. He's referred to as crippled or lame. He is referenced and known by his infirmity, his flaw. Something that happened two decades ago in Mephibosheth's past has defined his entire life. It is what he is known as, Mephibosheth. The cripple. When they say his name, they mention his problem. Even the writer of Samuel does this when he references Mephibosheth. But David never calls attention to Mephibosheth's infirmity. He does not call him cripple, he does not call him lame or even acknowledge his family's disgrace and fall. Ziba, the servant, mentions Mephibosheth, making a point to call out his deformity. But David does not acknowledge it. He simply says, where is he? In some translations of this passage, David says, where is this son? How many times do we, the church, act like Ziba? The king of kings asks us, have you called your uncle Bob recently? And we say, well, no, Bob's a drunk. I doubt he's sober enough to take a phone call. Or God says, hey, invite your cousin to church. And you think, well... She's an adulterer. They tend not to like the church house. But let's bring this discussion inside the sanctuary for a moment, a little closer to home. How often do we act like Ziba and dredge up or reference a fellow believer's past? Oh. Brother so-and-so, he used to be this or that. Am I hearing something? <laughs> oh, come on, Iva. <laughs> I... I'm just kidding. It's whoever. Don't get offended. <laughs> anyway, how often do we act like Ziba here in the church house? and dredge up one another's past. Oh, brother so-and-so, you know, he used to be this or that. Sister so-and-so, well, you know, 10 years ago, she did such and such, and she caused a big problem in the church, and I don't know what I'd think of her now. 
States. <laughs> Do I need to wait? Anyway, when we do this to each other, if we're being honest with ourselves, I've done it. So have you. Unfortunately, in this church, and this is all I'll say about it, some of us have been doing it very recently. And it needs to stop. When we do this, when we pull this past and lay it on our brothers and sisters, we do something that I think borderlines on blasphemy. If we bring up something with ill intent that is under the blood of Christ, we are denying the power of the blood of Christ. And if that does not rub right up against blasphemy, I don't know what does. Let's look at Psalm 103, if you would. I love this passage. Specifically, we're going to start in verse 9. He, referencing God, will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins, he does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. If God does that for sinners and sin, who are we to bring it up? I heard a song a while ago, and the first time I heard it, it stopped me cold. I had never realized before, but there is one thing that I and all of you can do. One thing that God cannot. Listen to this lyric. I know God can't recall what is cast in the sea. That's easy for him, and it's so hard for me. But there'll come a day when I see him in glory where I'll only recall Calvary's side of my story. When my sins were forgiven, when my salvation was bought, oh, what a moment when I can't remember everything he forgot. If that's not a reason to get to heaven, to put all of this behind us, Think on that. God, who told the universe, start expanding and don't stop until I tell you to. And it's been doing it ever since. God has taken away from himself the power to remember our sins. But we can dredge them up all the time. And we can beat ourselves or others up with them. But God's not interested in that. Instead, he wants to forget our infirmities, recognize his promise to us, and place us at his table. He wants to call us son or daughter. 
The rest of it he is done with once we put it under the precious blood of Christ. God does not define us by our worst mistakes. I am so thankful for that. And if God does not look at me that way, and he does not look at you that way, then this, then let's not look at each other that way. I have a friend God placed in my life within the last couple of years, and our friendship has grown and developed. His name is James, and, and, and he is a good Christian man. We work together. And at a pivotal time in my Christian life, I messed up. I messed up in a big way. And I was so defeated. I was so ashamed and depressed. I I couldn't tell a soul. But one day, James and I were taking a walk around the campus where we work, and before I knew what I was saying, I found myself telling him all about this issue. And even though I didn't want to be saying these words, you know how it is, sometimes you just, everything comes out of your mouth. I couldn't stop. And before I knew it, it was all out. Now, I have to give you some background on James. We have led very different lives. We're both Christian men, but he took the much wiser path to get to that point than I did. And the thing that I was telling him about was something that he personally would find greatly offensive and be turned off by. And yet, as we walked and I talked, we ended up at the shelter house that sits on the grounds behind our office. I was in tears. James was disappointed for me. Notice I didn't say in me, I said for me. I had asked God to forgive me, but I still felt defeated. I still felt like a loser. That's a consequence of sin. You can't just shake it off and walk away from it. But then James said he wanted to pray. And then he did. And he prayed a lovely prayer. One that expressed sorrow for my fall, but joy in God's redemptive grace. And not one time in that prayer did he call me a failure, a fornicator, a fool, a fraud or someone unworthy of his or God's love. You know what he called me? He called me brother. It was not until later that I realized why his prayer was so potent and kind-hearted. He did not bring up my deformity. He knew I was aware of my failure. Instead, he chose to acknowledge me as something important to him, a brother in Christ. Mephibosheth knew 
he was lame. He knew it better than anybody. But that's not what David chose to acknowledge. He never calls him cripple. Others do so. But David calls him son. I read this a while ago, and rather than restate it, I'll just quote it. Listen to this. We are children of royalty, crippled by the fall, permanently marred by sin, living parenthetical lives in the chronicles of earth, only to be remembered by the king, driven not by our beauty, but by his promise. He calls us to himself. And he invites us to take a permanent place at this table. Though we limp more than we walk, we take our place next to the other sinners made saints, and we share in God's glory. Let's revisit just for a moment. You don't have to turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 20. We read earlier. In verse 16, this is the conversation, remember, between Jonathan and David. Jonathan says to David, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And the Lord did just that. But Mephibosheth was never David's enemy. He was the child of someone David desperately loved. In essence, Jonathan was his brother. And so in Christian love, Mephibosheth was his own son. Those of us who are bathed in the blood of Jesus are not enemies. We are not rivals to be destroyed. We are family. Mephibosheth's story is our own in another very important way. David says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 7, Don't be afraid. Look up how many times Jesus said, fear not. It's his most repeated command. And it appears in some form in every book of the Bible. Mephibosheth is afraid to approach the king. He knows who he is. He knows what blood flows through his veins. And it's a bloodline that David should eradicate. Plus, he's a cripple. He's a destitute outcast approaching the throne. He has no right. And he is justly afraid. But the first words he hears are words of welcome and assurance. And then the king sets his one-time potential rival at his table, and he keeps him there. I have a Bailey said something to me recently. She said, you know what the first thing is that's required to become a child of God? You have to be a sinner. There's a song I have grown to love called A Child of the King. Its first verse says, once I was clothed in the rags of my sin, wretched and poor, lost and lonely within, 
but with wondrous compassion, the king of all kings, in pity and love, took me under his wings. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm a child of the king. His royal blood now flows in my veins, and I, who was wretched and poor, now can sing. Praise God. Praise God. I'm a child of the king. That's what I am to God, his child. I was a sinner, but now I'm his. He does not look at my past. He looks at my present, and he takes great joy in my future because I'm his child. And so are most of us. And that is how God views us, his children. And as he does that, then when we look and we talk about each other, our lameness Our deformities need not be mentioned. We are princes of the royal blood. There's a key element about Ziba that we've not addressed yet. Remember that servant, Ziba, he always mentions Mephibosheth's deformity. Now let's look at Ziba's response to the king's command in 2 Samuel 9.11. David issues a command, and it says that Ziba replied, Yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. You can bet at this point, Ziba has called Mephibosheth a cripple for the last time. He is much more than that now. He sits at the king's table. His identity is firmly rooted in the king. You know, ironically, one of the most potent things I've ever read outside of the Bible that demonstrated for me what God thinks of us was in a book written by Kurt Vonnegut called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. And Kurt Vonnegut, he's dead now, was a secular humanist. He was not a religious man, and he was most certainly not a Christian. But he was wise enough to recognize something in Jesus Christ. He called himself a Christ-loving agnostic, whatever that is. But he believed that the Sermon on the Mount was the most powerful piece of rhetoric in all of human history, and he was right about that. And he wrote a book called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. And in this book, there's a character named Elliot Rosewater. And Elliot is the heir of a vast fortune. And when he inherits this fortune, he doesn't know what to do with it. And he says, I have all this wealth. I don't need any of it. So he decides to set up a foundation called the Rosewater Foundation after his last name. And this foundation's aim is to help. And that's it. That's its mantra. And over time in this town, I can't remember what state it's set in, probably Indiana. That's where most of Vonnegut's books are set. Um, Word gets out about this foundation, and the requirement is just to call and ask. People will call and say, my heater has gone out, and I can't afford to fix it. And Elliot pays to fix it. 
or someone calls and says, you know, my mother has died in California and I can't afford the plane ticket. And Elliot buys him a plane ticket. And over time, as always is the case with generosity, people start abusing it. A woman will call one year and say, I've gotten pregnant. The baby daddy is long gone. I can't afford this child. And Elliot supports him. And a year, year and a half later, the same woman calls and says, I'm pregnant again. The dad is gone. And Elliot says, okay, I'll support him. And as this continues, more and more people start taking advantage of Elliot's generosity. And they don't even mean to. Most of them aren't malicious about it. They just aren't self-aware enough to realize that they're failing at life. And Elliot's family gets very concerned because they're seeing this man being taken advantage of by everyone around him. And they think, he's crazy. He's going to fritter away the fortune. This is insane. We've got to stop this. And so Elliot's family members sue, claiming that he has lost his mind. He's gone over the edge. He's not mentally competent. He should not have the responsibility of this massive wealth because he's not using it correctly. And the case goes to trial. And the family produces witness after witness of people. And it's obvious that Elliot is being taken advantage of. And so Elliot's lawyers call him into a conference and they say, Elliot, you're going to lose this case. You're going to be declared mentally incompetent and the foundation and its wealth and its mission, it's going to be taken away from you. And Elliot doesn't want that. He wants to help these people. He feels this burden. And he thinks about it, and he says to his lawyers, well, what if I just gave my wealth to my children? Right? A father can leave his wealth to his offspring. There's nothing crazy about that. And his attorneys go, no, of course, you could easily do that. Uh, that, that would probably take care of this problem. And Elliot says, great, I want to adopt everyone in the county. <laughs> and his lawyers say, that's, that's not practical. And Elliot says, I didn't say it was practical. You work for me. Adopt everyone in the county. Make it happen. And so they do. And as Elliot is signing the legal adoption papers, for everyone in the county. His lawyer says to him, well, Elliot, he signs the papers, and his lawyer says, Elliot, do you have a message for everybody? And Elliot says, yes. Tell them that their father loves them. Our robe stained with sin was all that we had to lay at his feet. How about today? We promise God 
I won't hold out your sins as something to beat you up with. And you won't hold out your sins against me. And we'll all sit at the king's table because praise God, praise God, we are children of the king. Justin, you can come. I'm not quite sure what to do with this, but that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> you know, those of us who claim the blood of Christ, let's look at each other through his eyes. Let's work together for the glory of his kingdom, our kingdom. The kingdom our adopted father has graciously made us heirs to. And if you don't know him, if you're here today and you're not an heir, don't you want to be called son or daughter? Don't you want a father who will look past your deformity and see the beauty that only he can instill in us? We all limp, every one of us. We all limp into the king's presence. But he's still willing and wants to invite us to eat at his table. And once we accept that invitation, our lameness will still be there. Mephibosheth was still a cripple. But it won't define us as it didn't define him. Our lameness will wilt under the king's healing gaze. It will not dominate or control us. Thanks be unto God for this indescribable thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for salvation. God, thank you for a church May we work so hard to defend and preserve it so that others, God, we can pass on the legacy that we've been given so that this indescribable gift that you've given the world, we may be people who share it with boldness and with love, always extending, God, the grace that you so willingly have given to us. Lord, I don't know why this was put on my heart today. I'm unworthy to stand here. No one knows that more than me. But God, you've placed me, you've placed us at your table. May we take with joy what you have so freely offered us. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your love.
Amen. Would you stand, please? Turn to page 145 in your big book. Page 145. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the spot and melt the heart of stone. Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He it white as snow. Since nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim, I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's land. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white My goodness, what a word from the Lord this morning. I feel like we've heard from heaven. And while Brother Brian was preaching, the thought came to me, you know what, sometimes we're like David. Sometimes we love and we bless and we encourage and we forgive. And sometimes we're like Mephibosheth. Sometimes we need forgiveness sometimes we need grace sometimes we need mercy sometimes we need someone to come along inside of us and help carry a burden and lift a load amen it's like while he was preaching I thought I can identify with both those men and God help us God help us that we would be the best 
of both of those men. Our family needs us. I've said it dozens of times. Our community needs us. And saints, we need each other. You can look out over the way the world's going. And if ever, I was thinking the little course the other day, if we ever needed the Lord before, we sure do need Him now. And I'm thankful for the times when I had to go to the Lord and ask Him to dip into the well of salvation again, send some grace, send some help. And the Lord has never disappointed my soul. And he'll not disappoint yours. Life is not always easy. It's not always kind. It's not always convenient. And I think that's why the Lord gave us a church family. Somebody that knows what it's like to walk through this life. Somebody that knows when you're down there up. And then the times when they're, they're down, you're up, you're up and they're down. I mean, we need each other. And we need to, to bind our hearts together. Hold on to each other. Cherish. Cherish this place and the Spirit of God that we feel. Hold it sacred. Stand for it. Fight for it. Whatever the need be. What a beautiful message today. I pray that it's found lodging in every heart. And that we'll take what we need from it. Apply it to our life. And just pray that God will make us better. That he will make us better. Amen that we might go out to a world and win some. Amen. So thankful for the beautiful message today. I am... Horse altars are open if anyone would like to pray. I'll ask Brother Justin to sing another verse and chorus, and we'll leave the service with you. But if you'd like to pray, if you'd like to just bring your burden to the Lord and leave it there, what a beautiful service to do it in. Amen. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete I'll lay my trophies down All down at Jesus' feet Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, and sin had left the crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. You know, I...
I've been in the desert. I've been in the desert for a long time. I didn't darken a church door for 15 years. I don't even know if I opened a Bible in that amount of time. And my heart is so heavy. This congregation is at such a vulnerable and pivotal moment. I've been out there. I've been thirsty. And I'm worried that the Bryans that are out there in the future might not have this well to come to. I am a little bit worried that we don't seem to acknowledge or understand the perilousness of this moment. I don't want to lose this. Looking at so many of these young children, teenagers, And folks, the devil doesn't want it to be here. And he's fighting. He's fighting so hard right now to turn us against each other. To break this thing up. To block the grace and the goodness of God. And you know what? He doesn't even have to work right, real hard right now to do it. We're doing it for him. And I'm not sitting here pointing the finger. I'm looking in the mirror. So get over that, okay? This is about all of us. These young children, they've not experienced life yet. They've not fallen. They've not failed. But they will And when they do, shame on us, woe be unto us, if we've dried up this well for them. God, forgive us. Forgive us for putting ourselves above you, because that's what's happening. It's not about Justin or Tony or Donna or me or any of you. And it never has been. The devil has one goal for every one of us to limp into hell. And when we get there, he will call us crippled. But when we limp 
and to heaven. God will call us son. I know the greeting I want. I know the greeting I want for all of these children. And when before the throne I stand in him complete I lay my trophies down all down at Jesus' feet Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left the crimson stain he Whereby thy grace to claim, I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's land. Jesus paid it all and all to him. See?